This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. If you want to get in contact with the show, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooksandnewstalk.ie. Or if you've missed any of our programmes, don't worry, they're all podcasted on the Newstalk website. So check out our programme page, www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books. Now on to something very wild and inspiring. My next guest is calling for a rewilding of the British Isles and much of Europe too. He wants wolves, beavers, bison and ling to roam free and envisions a future Europe in which elephant, rhino and hippotami could wander as they did in prehistoric times. Feral searching for enchantment on the frontiers of rewilding is a passionate polemic and a work of hope, bravery and revelation. Without doubt, this book will appeal to both history lovers and environmentalists, as well as those who like a good story. Well, I caught up with George earlier in the week and asked him if Feral was a political manifesto or maybe a midlife crisis. It's a bit of both and quite a lot else besides. I'd like to point out that I did not buy a motorbike. I bought a sea kayak, um, which makes all the difference. But you could call it a midlife crisis, but you could also maybe call it a midlife awakening. And I think the midlife, uh, I was 50 in January, is a time when you look back on where you've got to so far, what you've been up to, and then you look forward to the fact that you're going to be an old crop before too long, and you might as well get the best you possibly can out of life before that happens. And so I suppose with Feral, one of the things I was doing was to try to find some of the delight and enchantment and wonder and adventure that I had as a young man living and working in the tropics, um, which isn't so easy for me now with children and all the other obligations I've got, to try to find some of that here in Britain and in the rest of Europe, where we we have such small opportunities at the moment for um, engaging with the wild, with the wonders and the delights of of a self-willed ecosystem. I want myself and my children and everybody else to be able to enjoy some of the extraordinary things that I enjoyed when I was a young man. Now, there's a wonderful element of journal in this book and of history, as I said, and, and biography and so on. But central to all the stories in the book is about rewilding nature. How do we rewild nature and what is it all about? Rewilding, in my view, should be about doing as little as possible, really, taking down the fences, blocking up the drainage ditches, reintroducing some of the missing species, which are just critical to to restart any effective ecosystem functions, and then standing back and allowing nature to take its course. And I I don't know whether you're quite as bad in Ireland, but here in Britain, we, we have this terrible fixation with control and management and stewardship. And there's a sense that if we don't constantly keep nature under our control, something awful will happen. Uh, And this applies to conservationists as much as it applies to anyone else. How bad have things got? Well, uh, it's very striking that even when you go to some of the well-known conservation sites um, in in the uplands of Britain, and and I know that this is the case in one or two parts of Ireland at least, um, you'll see an ecosystem which is just a burnt-out, grazed-out shell of what it once was and what potentially it could be again, missing 
all large predators, most of its large herbivores, um, almost all trees in many cases, um, and the great majority of species which could be living here. And certainly in Britain, we have this utter fixation with, um, with, with maintaining what are basically farm systems rather than natural systems. And we seem to believe that we, we have a duty to, to keep grazing sheep and cattle, even in conservation sites, even though we know the amazing amount of damage that they do. And talking about fixations, you've openly admitted that you have an unhealthy obsession with sheep and have said sheep farming is a slow-burning ecological disaster which has done more damage to the living systems of this country than either climate change or industrial pollution. I think a lot of readers will be very surprised to read that. Yes, I know. It's one of these things that we are adept at overlooking. And I think partly that goes back to the pastoral tradition in, in poetry. It goes back to Theocritus in the 3rd century BC this equation of shepherding with virtue and innocence and purity picked up by Virgil and then by the Elizabethan poets, by Spencer and Marlowe and to like that. And, and it's so deeply embedded in our consciousness that um, sheep are good, you know, that the Agnes Dei, the Lamb of God, um, which, which restores life to the world and all, all, all of that stuff. But actually, you know, when you look at what sheep have done in terms of thriving enclosure, the horrendous human suffering they've caused, but now the amazing extent of ecological damage. I mean, the sheep have done more extensive damage to, to the ecosystems of this country than all the building that's ever taken place here. Our land has been sheep-wrecked. Um, the White Plague has, has just leveled it. It's, it's destroyed almost everything, and yet we don't see it, partly because we're so used to it. We imagine that the natural state of the hills is a bowling green with contours, but partly because we find it very hard to conceive of keeping sheep as anything other than being a virtuous and innocent activity. And can you talk to me a little bit about wolves? That was the other surprising mm. thing I read in your book. Well, I mean, wolves, we associate them, of course, with killing things, and they're pretty adept at doing that. But they also bring life to far more species than they kill. And there was um, a remarkable sequence of events took place when they were reintroduced to the Yellowstone National Park in the United States in 1995. Within a very few years, they had restored the entire ecosystem. The height of trees in the river valleys quintupled in just six years. Songbirds moved back in. The number of beavers rose massively. Bison rose. Bears rose. Lots of the different species in the rivers, their, their numbers rose. Hawks, weasels, foxes, badgers. And it's all because of the impacts that the wolves had, primarily driving the deer, which were massively overpopulated, despite all attempts by people to control them, had grazed down much of the land to almost nothing, just as the sheep do over here. They drove the deer out of places where they could easily be caught, and that allowed the trees to come back, and that allowed all the other wildlife then, that, then to come back. And they killed coyotes, which... Um, um, meant there were more rabbits and mice, which meant there were more hawks and weasels and foxes and the rest. And they uh, left carrion for the bald eagles and the ravens and the bears to feed on. And the whole ecosystem boomed. All these extraordinary things happened when they're reintroduced. And the wolf is what's called a keystone species. It's, it, it's essential for creating impacts which are far greater than its numbers would, would suggest. And uh, an ecosystem without its keystone species, its large predators, some of its large herbivores, is utterly different in the way that it functions and what it contains to an ecosystem which retains them. 
And the discoveries which have recently been made about keystone species and trophic cascades, these ecosystem processes which bounce all the way down the food chain that are started by the top predators, creates, in my mind, a very powerful argument for the reintroduction of species that we're missing. I was surprised, George, to come across all the poetic and literary references in the book. You have Keats, T.S. Eliot, Robert Burns, Andrew Marvel, and even D.H. Lawrence. Are you a lover of poetry and how important is it to you in your life? Yeah, no, poetry is very important to me. It has been ever since I was a young man. I, I, while I was a scientist by training, I studied zoology. I've always had a great interest in literature and I read voraciously um, poetry as well as prose and, and very widely as well. I suppose possibly one of the advantages of not having had a, an education in the humanities is that I'm totally Catholic in my tastes and fairly unselective and I'll just read whatever I can get get, get hold of. And, and so I, I found that um, when, when I was writing the book, some of the things I was discovering and stumbling across resonated beautifully, I thought, with fragments of poetry which I'd retain. I mean, every chapter starts with, with a fragment of poetry and in some cases they resonate almost uncannily. And I was reminded when I was reading your book of the great poet Ted Hughes and Go Fishing. Poetry can add such such life to books. Yes, I agree. I think they give it a resonance, which um, they take you somewhere beyond where the, the scope that you would normally be able to inhabit with a book. And by leading the reader into poetry, as well as into the descriptions and into the factual areas, you can take them on a much longer and wider journey than you'd otherwise be able to. And you cleverly put D.H. Lawrence, I think, uh, before a chapter that you talk about how not to rewild the world. Could I get you to read from that? And I think in this empty world, there was room for me in a mountain lion. And I think in the world beyond, how easily we might spare a million or two humans and never miss them. Yet what a gap in the world, the missing white frost face of that slim yellow mountain lion. And, And what I think Lawrence does there is something I've seen is quite a common phenomenon, a love for large predators associated with a hatred or dismissal of human beings. And speaking of large predators, you have great stuff on Joy Adamson, who wrote the uh, famous book Born Free, and also characters like John Aspinall, which make for very entertaining reading, I have to say. Yes, Joy Adamson in particular had this fantastic reputation and and was portrayed um, by Virginia McKenna in the film Born Free as this amazing, wonderful, loving, caring character. But she seems to have had a very strong set of what looked like psychopathic characteristics. She was a deeply unpleasant character, so, so, so much so that when she was finally murdered, the um, investigation was delayed for, for, for months by a surfeit of suspects, <laughs> so many people that she had made really, really angry, especially black people who she treated um, with utter disdain and, and in a really revolting way, um, in a very racist fashion. And there's, there's a whole series of instances, and you know, the Lawrence poem illustrates one of, of people who really, really love Big Cat and really seem to have enormous difficulty engaging with people and that, you know, these atrocious things. I mean, John Aspinall, he uh, you know, was famous for his tigers um, who he looked after, but he um, uh, went on about how Hitler was right and we need a program of eugenics and, and we need um, a benign nuclear war to wipe out a large part of humankind and, and really disgusting things. And and so I, I, I wrote this salutary chapter in the book to say, look, here's how it could all go horribly wrong. 
And it makes for riveting reading, I have to say, and adds huge value to the book, I think, because there's clear lessons from this, isn't there? Yes. I mean, I mean, we, rewilding must never be a project which harms human beings. It must always be done with the consent and enthusiasm of people. It must never be used as a means of, of, of pushing anyone off the land. But there are enormous opportunities for doing it without having any of those effects. The European continent, for example, one estimate suggests that Farmers are vacating the land very fast due to completely different reasons. Um, Basically, globalization of markets means that the less fertile parts of the world become uncompetitive and younger people not wanting to stay on the land. This one estimate suggests that um, there will be 30 million hectares of land becoming available by 2030. That's an area the size of Poland. Now, it seems to me that if we're looking at that much land, which could potentially be rewilded, then it's unambitious only to talk about wolves and lynx and bear and bison and uh, moose and boar and beavers, um, all of which are already spreading very rapidly across the continent. Perhaps we should also think about bringing back some of Europe's lost megafauna, the, the elephants, the rhinos, the lions, the, 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 the hippos, um, the hyenas. Um, they, they all used to live here. And why shouldn't have a Serengeti on our doorstep if it does no harm to people and greatly enhances the wonder and the joy of our lives why not and do you think that will really happen I, I, I think the potential is there but we have to mobilise to make it happen George, could I end on a spiritual note? It struck me when I was reading your book that reconnecting with nature is hugely spiritual for you mm. well I, I have no religion as such um, but I do have well I, I call it enchantment I suppose and, and that's that's the theme which runs through the book and and what I've been seeking is, is a re-enchantment 